You're listening to The Comedy Cellar, live from the table, on the Riotcast Network, riotcast.com. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Live from the Table. My name is Noam Dwarman. I'm the owner of the Comedy Cellar. I'm here with uh, Dan Natterman, as almost always, our producer, Periel Ashenbrand, my good friend and noted intellectual um, who writes for the City Journal now, Mr. Coleman Hughes, and our really esteemed guest of honor who we're very, very proud to have, Mr. Peter Singer, has been described as the world's most influential living philosopher. He is professor of bioethics at Princeton University and the author of many books, including Animal Liberation, Practical Ethics, One World, The Life You Can Save, and The Most Good You Can Do. Welcome, Mr. Singer. Thank you. Nice to be joining you. Where are you located right now, by the way? Uh, I'm just outside Melbourne in uh, Australia. Is it easy to keep safe there? Is it, I don't know, is it, is it high, low? It's a lot easier to keep safe here. We have had uh, a total of 106 deaths since the beginning of the whole pandemic compared to, what are you at, 130,000 or something? Something like that. What do you you attribute that to? What did you guys do right that we did wrong? Well, we, you know, I'm not a great fan of our present government, I have to say. It's rather conservative. But one thing I will say for them is that they listen to the scientific experts um, I think it's a good idea. I think that's something that your leader has not been doing, uh, and that certainly hasn't helped in dealing with this situation. Uh, do you guys, the last question about just I'm so curious. Are you, are you are you guys wearing masks there? Are you locked down? What what do you what do you do right? Uh, so we we have um, the, the city of Melbourne itself has gone back into lockdown because there has been a spike in cases. That means like uh, you know somewhere like a hundred cases a day. Uh, still not a lot by U.S. standards, but um, it's enough to make the city itself go back into lockdown, but not regional uh, Victoria and not the rest of Australia. That's uh, There are fewer cases there, so they're basically out of lockdown. Well, largely out of lockdown. Now, still some restrictions. So um, Coleman here is uh, just graduated as a philosophy major from Columbia University. And I, I don't know if you're aware of him, but he's... Uh, He's, he's quite noted already here in, in America, and I know this is, a, this is a big, exciting thing for him to be able to speak to. So I'm, I'm going to turn it right over to Coleman, because I know he's been studying you, and he's got all kinds of questions on his mind. Go ahead, Coleman. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an honor to meet you, Peter. I've been a, I've been a big fan ever since I read Animal Liberation uh, many years ago. Um, Great. So I guess the, f- the first question I want to start out with actually – pertains to what we were just talking about, about the body count in Australia versus um, America. And my question is about the, uh, the role that body count should play in our moral judgments of harms in the world. And I think this is something that lies at the bedrock of a lot of concerns going on right now, not just coronavirus, where we're comparing body counts between different states and different countries but also with police killings of unarmed Americans. Um, it, on the one hand, it's possible and 
uh, utilitarianism often gets attacked as a, uh, a naive philosophy that only cares about something like body count. So it's possible to uh, care about body count to the exclusion of all other issues and to say that X is a bigger issue than Y purely based off body count alone. And then it's possible to not care enough about body count and dismiss it altogether as an important indicator of how much you should care about an issue. So I'm curious as someone who is, you know, the, the leading modern day utilitarian, I would argue, um, what you, how you think about how much you should care about an issue in terms of body count versus um, more subjective measures of harm. Yeah, thanks, Carmen. That's a, a good question. Um, and firstly, let me say utilitarians are not just counting bodies. Um, so I noticed that uh, uh, some time back when the number of uh, U.S. Uh, deaths from coronavirus passed the number of deaths uh, of Americans during the Vietnam War, uh, a lot of people sort of made this point uh, as if somehow that showed that the coronavirus was doing more harm than the Vietnam War. Uh, well, that's clearly a mistake, and, and not only because the Vietnam War obviously harmed uh, Vietnamese a lot more than it harmed Americans, but it's also a mistake because the coronavirus does mostly kill uh, people in their older years, more like my age group, 70 plus, whereas uh, in Vietnam, the Americans killed uh, and probably most of the Vietnamese killed were much younger, people in their, in their 20s or 30s. So a utilitarian would say it's not the number of deaths, it's the number of years of life lost that we should be looking at. And obviously, when somebody in their 70s dies, they maybe lose 10 or 15 years of life. When somebody in their 20s dies, they lose 50 or 60 years of life. So that's a big difference. Uh, secondly, utilitarians don't just look at life anyway. They also want to take account of the qualities of, of life. So uh, that's why utilitarians have been uh, among the forefront of those who are trying to find ways of measuring well-being, uh, happiness, whatever you want to call it. Utilitarians, going right back to Jeremy Bentham, have always been concerned about that. And so uh, the loss of life of somebody who's in misery, um, not even wanting to go on living, which certainly you know, can be true of some people, uh, is not a tragedy in, in the way that the loss of life of somebody who's enjoying their life and does want to go on living is a tragedy. So all of those factors need to be taken into account. Um, but when they are, when they're properly taken into account, then, then yes, it's true. Utilitarians want to add things up and they want to say, how bad something is depends on its consequences and, and how bad it is for the well-being of all of those affected by it. So um, this kind of leads into another question, which is about abortion. And, you know, I've been pro-choice my whole life, first by instinct and then by reasoning, but the intuition that you just mentioned a, a minute or so ago that it's much worse to take to steal 80 years of someone's life as opposed to five years of someone's life would seem to entail or at least imply that we have to take very seriously the harm caused by canceling a life that may not even be born yet. What, you know, whether we want to call this 
uh, a life or not, we can, we, or a person or not, we can sort of table those and just look at the cancellation of, of potential life years as a concern in itself. Is that a reason to, is that a sound place to ground um, a, a non-religious pro-life stance or is, do you have a, a different view of that? Uh, well, it's a factor that ought to be taken into account. Uh, I don't think uh, in the present global circumstances, it's enough to uh, ground a, a so-called pro-life stance. Um, for one reason, I, I don't think that it's a good thing really for the world's population to grow further than it already is growing and is predicted to grow over the coming century. So I don't think that it's a good thing to say we want more beings to exist. And when you're talking about using the, this argument uh, as an argument against abortion, then given that the abortions are carried out at the stage when the subjective life of the being has not really begun, that is, there aren't conscious experiences, there isn't a sense of a being who wants to be existing, um, wants to go on living and is enjoying life, uh, it's really equivalent to um, not bringing another being into existence. In, in other words, this argument, insofar as it is an argument against abortion, is an argument against contraception or even going even further, an argument for having children, for having uh, you know, as many children as you can have under the circumstances. And uh, I don't think in the world as it is today, that's what we want. If you try to apply this in a world in which you know it had the resources of our planet and only had a few million people in it, maybe, uh, sure, that would be a different situation. Well, um, what do you? Oh, sorry. Um, have yeah. you? Are you familiar at all with the the uh, anti-natalist position, which says that having, I am. Yes, having I'm very a familiar baby with is uh, have, bringing a child or a life into this world is immoral and unethical because um, the worst case scenario, if you don't have a child, is no harm, no foul. But if you do have a child, you take the risk that this child will suffer. And you're bringing a suffering uh, human being into the world um, is, is, is a moral uh, negative. Uh, would you, do you uh, lend any credence to that argument? Oh, it's an argument, that, again, that, that needs to be considered, but I think it's too pessimistic about what life is like. Uh, you know, we shouldn't only be focusing on, on the harms and the possibility that well, in fact, more or less the certainty that any child we bring into existence will suffer to some extent. But I think we need to balance that against the positives of the lives of the children we bring into existence. And uh, depending on the circumstances in which we bring them into existence, we can reasonably hope that those positives uh, significantly outweigh the negatives. Um, I think that's, that's a, a suitable justification. I, I don't think we have to only think about the negatives. Can you imagine a situation where you would say it was unethical to bring a child into the world? If you're talking about a couple that's impoverished or has certain genetic uh, conditions that would make uh, the likelihood high of a child uh, being born with, 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 with sort of terrible uh, illness or something like that? Yes, absolutely I can. And I think there are many couples who recognize that. There are couples, for example, who know that they're carriers for uh, genetic diseases that mean that, that perhaps that their children will not only live briefly and that that life, short life, will be a life of suffering. And if they know that, then I do think it's unethical for them to have children. They should find 
or at least to have children that will have that disease, they should find a way around that, maybe using donor gametes uh, in order to get around that. Well, what if they don't know secure, but they know it for, say, 50-50 chance? Yeah, I still think it's better to avoid that risk then. Um, you know, there are ways of, depending on the condition we're talking about, there are ways of eliminating that risk. I think 50-50 chance is too big to take. Wasn't there a big piece that, um, I mean, it was at least 15 years ago, maybe longer, that you had written specifically about this? I believe it was on the cover of the New York Times magazine about spina bifida. And your, uh, the, your friend was on the cover of the magazine. It was a fascinating converse, conversation. There was a conversation. It was, this was uh, something called um, unspeakable conversations. Yes. Uh, that's right. Um, so, yeah, that was an interesting debate. It wasn't written by me. Uh, was, she wrote it, and it was about um, her visit to Princeton. Uh, yes. She was somebody who was born with a very serious disease and was in a powered wheelchair and was very disabled but she was enjoying her life um she she uh, sadly she died a few years ago but um yeah she did have a, uh, a good life and i think of this you know she had many assets that balanced the disability uh she was uh, very intelligent and you know, did a law degree and was working as a, as a lawyer. Um, she also came from a family background that had the resources to uh, give her that good life despite the disability. Uh, so yeah, certainly a dis I'm, I I'm, would never say that just the fact of a disability guarantees that life will be miserable. But um, I would say that if a couple can make a choice between having a child with a disability or having a child you know, with the serious disability I'm talking about, um, or with that, um, it's reasonable to choose to have the child without the disability. I loved that piece. I mean, I would like to say that for me too, it's such an honor to talk to you because when I was in graduate school, I discovered your books and um, they really changed the way that I saw the world. And I remember that there's there was one particular quote, and you'll forgive me if I'm not um, quoting it exactly, that was, you have um, a moral and ethical responsibility to help someone if, if helping them doesn't cause you harm. Is that, am I getting that n nearly right? Yes, that's pretty close. Uh, in fact, what I say is if, if helping doesn't cause you harm that is in any way comparable to the harm that you're preventing. So it might cause you some harm. Uh, this actually started from an example I used in an article many years ago about jumping into a shallow pond to rescue a child. And I was assuming that it does cause you some harm because you're wearing your fanciest clothes and they get ruined by jumping into the pond. So you're at some expense. But on the other hand, there's no risk to your life. And if you don't jump into the pond, the child is probably gonna drown. That's right. So the harm is in no way comparable to the harm you're preventing. And I then generalized from this to say, uh, okay, everybody would probably think you should jump into the pond and save the child, but why doesn't everybody think that we ought to help people in extreme poverty when for you know, relatively modest sums that don't cause us a lot of harm, uh, we can probably save a life of a child in a low-income country who, let's say, otherwise will get malaria and we can provide them with a bed net so they don't get malaria. You, so you had said actually that proximity is no excuse to not then um, carry over with that behavior, right? 
Uh, the absence of proximity, really. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because if the child is right in front of you in the pond, we would rescue the child. Uh, if the child is in somewhere on the other side of the world in a, in a malaria-prone region, we don't feel the same obligation to say, "Yeah, I better do something to help protect these kids from malaria." So, so let's 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 see how we can um, apply some of these concepts. I'm sure Coleman's thought along these lines too. The current day issues, the Black Lives Matters protests and the various issues that we're, we're kicking around here. One of the obvious ones to me, and I'm sure Coleman will have more that he's thought about, but always, always um, weighed on my mind was um, weighing, for instance, I think you're familiar with the New York had a policy of stop and frisk, mm-hmm, where they sure. would, where they would um, pull over a lot of, uh, uh, I, I think it's fair to say they were profiling African-Americans. Um, and prevented a lot of, ostensibly prevented a lot of um, people from being killed through this, while at the same time causing a lot of lesser harm, rage, resentment, um, oppression in a sense. How, how does one weigh that when if you could say, listen, it, it, it's not fair, it's caused all these, this resentment, yet it saved a thousand lives, let's say, if it could be demonstrated. How do you, how do you weigh those types of things? Yeah, it's 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 not easy to weigh, uh, you know, a lot of minor problems uh, as against uh, a small number of big losses. But I would have said, um, you know, in general, probably the saving of all of those lives justifies the. Uh, annoyance, if you like, uh, some resentment to the people who are stopped and frisked. But the problem, I think, was that it was, it seemed to be racially biased. Um, and that was one issue which, you know, it needn't have been, right? As I take it, it, it could have been non-discriminatory in that sense. And it could have been done with a lot, you know, the maximum amount of, of respect. I would have thought, in general, people should support the idea of, you know, we want to be safer. We, we want our police to carry out policies that have been demonstrated to save lives and to save our lives, as long as they do it in a way that really minimizes the harm that they're causing. And so I see the problem with the stop and frisk policy that it, it wasn't done in that way. Coleman? Yeah, uh, I mean, the other issue that I, I think about frequently is the the problem of homicide and particularly homicide in the black community but in general you look at the you know cdc keeps the leading causes of death and murder is the number one cause of death for black men in their 20s and early 30s and usually the issue really isn't brought up or if it is brought up it's just brought up as a uh, a way to change the topic from Uh, police brutality. So it's never considered as an issue that sort of one should care about in its own right. But you look at body count and it seems like there should be a movement, you know, that that isn't conflated with other movements, just really around this one issue. And, you know, that that sort of goes back to my first question about how people people don't experience the world um, in a way that the body count of an issue would perhaps should lead them to experience it. Um, And then you, of course you get into trade-offs with, you know, with the stop and frisk example, what I would work, one thing I would worry about 
which is where a body count thinking can go too far is what does it do to a community that is over policed uh, to the level of trust that that community has in the police, the degree to which they and their children are willing to co cooperate with police officers one or two generations down the line, which then ends up creating a situation where the police can't solve homicides because no one will talk because there's just a general resentment. And it's very, very difficult to find that balance. And that, that is somewhere where I feel like, you know, one can be a utilitarian as I've always considered myself to be or a consequentialist more broadly, but still feel like I just have to go with my gut and be sort of, uh, you know, if I were in charge of that program, I would just have to find the right balance and just notice when I was pissing people off too much in one direction or the other. And so it seems like there are some practical problems that once you have the moral philosophy down, you still really haven't solved. And like the devil is often in the details um, with these I things. totally agree with that. It is, there's a lot of detail. You always have to go into the circumstances. But, but also in this case, if we're talking about levels of homicide and the fact that, that murder is a major cause of death for black males of, in those age groups, surely we need to look at the background factor, which is that there's so many guns in the American community. And, and, and again, you know, sitting here in Australia where basically nobody has guns, um, you know, maybe certainly nobody has handguns. Um, I, I wouldn't know anybody in Australia who owns a handgun. Um, whereas, you know, in America, I do know, I do know people who have handguns. They tell me they have, um, that seems to me to be the, the basic thing. You need to get those guns out of the community. Um, and then that homicide rate will go down as well as of course the accidental shooting rate that will go down, which is quite horrible. These children who are being shot, which I read about over the July 4th weekend in the U S um, it's, it's astonishing to me that, uh, it's not possible to build a political coalition that will have that policy of getting guns out of the community. Well, I, you have something to follow up on that, Coleman? No, I was going to say that Coleman and I have both, <laughs> I think, separately used an analogy to speed limits where obviously you could end a lot of um, death by lowering the speed limit to 30 miles an hour, let's say. But we still let people drive at 70, even though that we may not think that's rational. And, and at some point, I think we just have to allow the pendulum to swing to its own possibly irrational position that the human race is comfortable with so that in a certain sense if if the people being policed just find this too distasteful even though they're fully aware that the alternative will lead to more deaths then i then then i kind of respect that i i i you know i i don't i, I don't see any alternative to to letting them weigh those things for themselves. And that's why I, w I was against stop and frisk. And I'm pretty conservative about a lot of things, but I was pretty much always against stop and frisk because I, I saw that the level of resentment that it caused was just untenable. It was just untenable um, for, for, a, for a free society. It was, it was just, we just couldn't live that way. I don't know if that's philosophical or not. Well, it's philosophical to say that uh, we need policies that are realistic and that human beings can live with. But uh, there is a question of what humanly beings can live with. Well, when you talk about speed limits, um, then actually we have accepted a lot of changes that were opposed, uh, which perhaps the most important one in terms of saving lives is uh, requiring people to wear seatbelts. Um, and there was, you know, I'm old enough to remember 
when those laws were brought in and there was opposition to those laws as well. People said, I don't want to be buckled in. I want to feel free. Um, and there were you know, claims that you might want to get out of a burning vehicle or whatever, you know, even though statistically that was you know, far less likely than that your life would be saved by not smashing your head into the windscreen. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, breath testing is another thing that has saved lives, I think. So people do come to accept this um, uh, to some extent. Now, there may be limits to that and maybe stop and frisk went past those limits. Um, but uh, certainly some reforms that people might find irksome at first, they will later come to accept as perfectly normal and valuable. I, I oppose the seatbelt laws, actually, full disclosure, but not, for, not because I ever, I never drove 10 feet in my life without being belted in, but just because I thought it would give the police another excuse to pull people over. And, uh, and I think that did turn out to be true, whether or not that's a good reason not to, wear seat belt, uh, not to have a seatbelt law, I don't know. But the police do indeed use that law as an excuse to pull people over. So you, you've written um, about the obligation to, to spend, if you, have, if you have a lot of money, to spend that money to help people. I think I saw that you wrote about that you, you shouldn't spend money on art when you could spend money on um, things that could help people, things like that. Is, is that, I, have, I, have a, I want to go past that, but is that correct? Yeah, that's roughly right. I think that there are, you know, I, I'm not, a, not against that, but I think that there are so many uh, important and urgent causes that are saving lives, reducing suffering, restoring sight to people who are blind. Uh, and they seem to me to be much better things to spend money on than to. So, uh, so that, that, that makes me think of kind of what Coleman was talking about before, because first of all, I think of money in terms of time. You could spend that time to make that money to help somebody, or you could, you know, take that time directly, although maybe it's not as efficient to do that. But we, we tend to be able to only focus on one thing at a time. And, and one of the, one of the trade-offs and one of the things that the, the Black, Mat Black Lives Matter does make me think about as a philosophical question is that if we're going to de be devoting all our energy, all our time on this issue, and by definition, that, that really seems to mean we are not going to devote any time to the other issues, which is where all the, the deaths are, where all the deaths are. And do we have an obligation in some way to, to face up to that and say, well, I, I can't spend, it's like spending all my money on something when, when there's, you know, when it could be much more efficiently used to cure malaria or whatever the example is. And that really seems to be what's going on. I don't ever want to say all lives matter, God forbid, because I understand and I've always felt that that usually comes out of the mouth, mouth of somebody who saying it in bad faith. But it does seem that we're seeing just body counts increasing now in a direct trade-off to what we're focusing on. And would, a, would you cry alarm philosophically at, at, at that outcome and what's going on there? Uh, if no, I think you have to be more specific with what you're getting at. Well, Coleman, you, you, you want to elaborate on that? Or? Well, yeah, well, yeah, I guess just to be a little more specific, um, there, there's a recent paper called Policing the Police by Harvard economist Roland Fryer, who has done a lot of very interesting uh, research on police use of force. And he looked at every, every Department of Justice investigation of a, of a police department since the mid-90s. 
And what he found, uh, the, the, the question he asked was, when the Department of Justice investigates a police department, does that affect uh, the level of crime in that city? Uh, the, the intuitive hypothesis being that maybe when the police are under investigation, they pull back, stop doing their jobs as much, stop doing proactive policing, and the crime rate, crime rate might go up as a result. So he tested that, and he found that in general, Department of Justice uh, investigations didn't affect the crime rate. But under special circumstances, when there was a viral video that provoked outrage, and, and as a result of that video, a Department of Justice uh, investigation ensued, in those circumstances, crime went up significantly um, to the tune of thousands of deaths that, you know, if he's correct, wouldn't have happened uh, in the absence of those particular investigations. So I, I think what I think that's what you're getting at, Noam, right? That there is a trade-off on that. That at least there's some evidence that there's a trade-off on the issue, and there's an overwhelming pressure to only care about one side of that trade-off right now at this particular moment because of um, the level of energy that there is around this particular issue. But there might be a very sound and utilitarian reason to go against the tide and say, yes, I, I care about your issue as well. But actually, if, I'm, if you were to ask which, which one is more important or whether there's a trade-off, there's a very compelling case to be made that, that there is an important one to recognize. Yeah, it's possible. I, I, I don't know the paper, so I can't say you know how well grounded that those claims are but it does sound like it could be uh, another example of of this uh, identifiable victim effect which is which is really what i was talking about in the the child in the pond that is if you see a child in the pond who's drowning you would jump in and save that child no question because the child is in front of you you can see that child if somebody says will you donate to the against malaria foundation to provide bed nets uh, in regions where children are dying in malaria and the bed nets demonstrably save lives at low cost, uh, well, you're less drawn to do that because you will never know which child you've saved, right? Because if you can't, uh, you don't know where your bed nets are going, but anyway, you don't know which children would have been suffered, died from malaria and which wouldn't have. So it's much less appealing. Uh, and that's been demonstrated in a lot of uh, research. You know, there was a famous case of a girl who fell down at disused oil well in Texas and people donated several million dollars to rescue her uh, and she was rescued which is great but they won't donate the same money again to help people uh, elsewhere where they don't have an identifiable victim. So you know you see a, a shocking video like uh, the death of George Floyd and of course everybody's outraged and needs to do something about this. Um, you say well you know, when these things are investigated, then there are other crimes and other people get killed, but we can never identify exactly which, who the people are because, of course, there were always some level of crimes and you can't say which are the ones that would have occurred, which are the homicides that would have occurred anyway and which are the homicides that only occurred because the police were pulling back as a result of this investigation. So um, we're less concerned about that um, and we're less likely to make it a, a big cause and and that certainly can be a sense of uh, can be a reason for distorted emphasis on yeah i'm, I'm i think i'm saying oh, i'm sorry i'm sorry sir no, no, I, no. I think i'm i think i'm saying something also i am definitely saying what Coleman was saying but i'm trying to think of a good analogy let's say i had 10 million dollars or 100 million dollars and you know 40 hours a week to to spend and um 
I could spend it and have a good chance of curing cancer and save millions and millions of lives or spend it and have a good chance of curing some very, very rare disease, some flesh-eating amoeba, which is just horrible, and save, you know, 10 lives a year. I think if I'm understanding the stuff you've been saying, I would have a moral obligation to spend that money to save the millions of lives rather than the 10 lives. And that Absolutely. is, yeah. and that's kind of analogous to what I'm seeing going on here. I'm saying, well, th there's a tremendous amount of time, money, energy going now towards the issue of social, of policing, of justice and, uh, and policing and all that. And I'm wondering if in a certain way, when we look at the statistics, it is, in a, it is in a way spending all our time and money on the disease that kills very few while we're just ignoring the thousands of lives that are, are being killed you know, in, in cities all over the, the country. And it's pretty clear we can't focus on both at the same time. As a matter of fact, we focus on one at the expense of the other. And, I'll just, and then I'll really stop. And I think that part of it is that, rightfully so, we, we just can't look at issues of race that disinterestedly. When, when you see a white person kill a black person, as opposed to a black person kill a black person or a white person kill a white person, as much as we think it shouldn't matter, it's just, you know, a, a, it's just a statistic, it does matter to us. And, and we just can't be comfortable treating it like, you know, the, the trade-off between diseases. So that's my... Right. So, I mean... The question is, is, is there really that trade-off um, or is it in fact, as, as Coleman suggested at, at one point, that maybe police attitudes to policing black communities, especially when we're talking about white police who don't live in or come from those communities, that those attitudes not only mean that people get killed in, black, black people get killed in horrible circumstances as in George Floyd's case, but also that they're less connected with the community, people in the community don't talk to them, um, and, and in general, there's a worse situation. Uh, you know, I, I honestly don't really know what the facts are here. I'm not an expert on crime in uh, uh, in American cities. Uh, yeah. But, but I, those, I are, think, those are the issues that are relevant. Surely we need we need to get answers to those questions. I, I think Coleman would agree with me, and we can move on to some of that. You know, in Chicago, they're having crazy numbers. What are the stats of people killed in a, in a weekend in Chicago now? Uh, it's it's horrible. You know, just, just, I, don't, I don't know the number off the top. And moreover, they tend to be younger. I mean, people killed by cops are generally in their twenties, I gather. Well, not just younger. They're people, you know, innocent children, not tangling with the police, not, uh, you know, not just innocently walking to school, driving, whatever. Uh, Fifteen this week, twenty that week, twelve this, you know, uh, every week. And um, really, the answer, natural answer, we flood the cities with police, you know, and, you know, stop this immediately, stop this bleeding. And the, but the, and the answer to the other problem is defund the police. And so it's just, it's a, you know, it's just an interesting trade-off. I don't want to dwell on it too much. I, but I think, I think in the end, it really does, if you think deeply about it, it really does come down to really philosophical type uh, uh, issues, very similar to what I, I've seen you speak about. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's true. But but let me just go back and say, I think the the ultimate answer is is get the guns out of out of the hands of people who have no reason to have guns. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah, that's just yeah. not uh, feasible in this country. But uh, 
I know. I really, I disagree. I, I agree. I agree so much in theory. I think we're just, you know, every, every country in Europe, as well as Australia, that's looking into America and saying, what the hell is going on with you guys? What's going on with the police? What they, what they don't, you know, what, what they often don't think about is how much a result, uh, how much of this is all caused by the fact that we have a gun culture. Um, even the police brutality elements and the police killings, because when an American cop pulls a suspect over, they have a fairly rational expectation that that suspect might have a pistol hidden in the, in, in the glove compartment. And they're on edge to a degree that cops in Europe just aren't and don't need to be. And that leads to making more mistakes and more jumpiness on the part of cops. And so, yeah, I, I agree. It's all, you know, the, the landscape would be completely different if we were like the UK. Um, but, you know, I, I worry that a, a war on guns here would, would might go about as well as the war on drugs has here, you know, given how many guns are illegal. Um, but I'm, you know, it, you know, you, you, you highlight the problem, uh, you hit the problem on the head, I think. Um, but so I think if, if you want, we can pivot to a little bit of a different topic. Um, okay. sure. Can I, ask you have a question? Go ahead. I just have, no, I just want to backtrack for one second because part of what's always fascinated me so much about, um, your work is I would venture to guess, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong, that what Noam said, that if you have $10 million and you could either cure you know, can uh, cancer for 100 people or a very rare disease for two people, um, you would say, as you said, that you, know, you would have the ethical responsibility to cure the disease that affected more people. But I would say that based on what I've read from your work, that you would say that that would even be the case if one of those children, uh, one of the people with a very rare disease was one of your own children. Um, wow. and, am, am I right? Well, you're right in the sense that I, I do think that's what you ought to do. Um, right. Now, of course, I would understand anybody who didn't do that. Maybe I wouldn't do that myself. Um, so I, I, I would hit draw a bit of a line between what I would say you ought to do and what I would say, you know, we ought to condemn you for doing or blame you for sure. doing. I think we understand that people are going to give preference to their children. But you know, we it, tend not to blame them, but ideally, yes, if you're, you know, very large number of lives that you save or the life of one of your children, then. But you know, every, under your you know, scenario um, where you say that you're obligated to spend money uh, to help the most people possible and not on art and not on other things. Uh, you know, one might argue that nobody would, that, that the reason we make money in the first place is to spend it on ourselves or on our children and so on. So that, um, I mean, we have to give people, we have to allow people uh, the, the ability to spend money on things they enjoy and to spend it on themselves or they're not going to make it in the first place. They'll just stay at home and, and say, <laughs> and I'm not going to work. I mean, you know, to what extent should we be morally allowed to be selfish so that we'll, we'll be motivated to work? Well, I think people are motivated to work for other reasons, and I'd like to encourage them to be motivated to work <laughs> for other reasons, like the fact that it gives them great potential to do good. And, and I've had students like that. I've had Princeton students who, i give you uh, one example. I had a, a student who was an excellent philosophy student, uh, thought about going on to do graduate work and essentially to become a, a philosophy professor would have enjoyed that had a uh, offer to go to uh, Oxford University to do graduate work there which is a place where I did my graduate work and I can tell you it's a beautiful city to 
great, a great university to study in. But he chose to go to Wall Street in order to earn money, in order to give most of that money away. Um, this is now probably about 10 years since he graduated. He's been giving half of his income to effective charities ever since. Um, wow. And since he's doing pretty well, that's a reasonably substantial amount of money. So, uh, you know, he, he was motivated by that. And uh, I know it sounds unusual and you'll say, well, you know, that's one in a million or something like that. But I don't see why we can't encourage that. Uh, and he's certainly not the only one that I know, by the way. There are I'll tell you, that's kind of a rare thing on Wall Street. I went to Wharton, by the way, with a lot of people who had Wall Street ambitions, and that never came up, I must tell you. Um, uh, well, you know, actually, I, 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 you know, Wharton uh, started this uh, organization called One for the World, where a lot of Wharton business graduates have pledged to give 1% of their earnings. This is not as much as my former student gave. He gave he's been giving 50%, but uh, if every Wharton graduate gave 1% to effective charities, um, that would also make a significant difference. And I mean, my, my graduate uh, had my income, it wouldn't. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> Coleman, come on, pivot us, Coleman, pivot us. Uh, my, my good friend Ethan at Columbia was head of the One for the World chapter there. Um, All right. Um, so I wanted to talk about uh, long time horizons, thinking about the distant future from a utilitarian perspective. Uh, I'm sure you're aware of Tyler Cowen. Mm, sure. Uh, are, you, are you familiar with his book from a year and a half ago, Stubborn Attachments? I haven't uh, caught up with that one yet. No, sorry. So um, just to give you a basic picture of what he's arguing there, T Tyler is a you know libertarian or libertarian-leaning economist, uh, but also someone who's very versed in you know philosophy, co published, co-authored papers with Derek Parfit and whatnot. Um, and he argues in this book that when you think about the, the distant future, um, there's obviously the, the first observation that the number of people that are going to exist are going to dwarf the number of people that have existed. So on a you know, baseline utilitarian perspective, the future matters you know, more than, uh, than everything that's happened up to the present. And um, you know, so what he basically does is argue that a few different premises. One, that the, the future really matters and that we shouldn't discount the future. Uh, two, that GDP is a, um, a decent proxy for happiness and that as the GDP of a country increases, the average happiness tends to increase. And third, that very small changes in the GDP rate today will translate into extremely large changes in the amount of wealth that Earth has, you know, 500 years from now. So if you just change the GDP rate slightly in the past 100 years of American history, then we would be as poor as Mexico rather than what we are today. And um, so he basically comes to the conclusion that uh, our, our biggest moral obligation setting aside human rights, which he agrees with as, as constraints, our biggest obligation should be to maximize the rate of GDP um, so that, you know, people, you know, citizens 500 or 1,000 years from now are orders of magnitude more wealthy and happy than they, they would be. What do you think of that uh, thesis? Can I just, can I just uh, real quickly say that, you know, when when um, Peter was talking about the more remote per people are harder to care about. And now you're talking about people that don't even exist 500 years in the future. 
that sounds like an extreme example of that. But I'll, <laughs> yeah, no, but the, in many ways, I, I, the reason I thought of this is because when I was reading this book, it, it, it seemed very much like Tyler Cowen was making the singer argument, but using time instead of distance. Yeah. And, I, you know, look, I, I totally agree with the general idea that um, whether people are distant from us geographically or temporally in time uh, isn't relevant. That in itself is not relevant. We should be just as concerned about the well-being of somebody who is going to live in a thousand years as we are about somebody who's living today. But there, there are some buts in that. One is, you know, we can't be certain that anybody will be living in a thousand years. It may be that there will be some catastrophe so that nobody is living at all. Um, there's small chance of that, but if you, the further you project into the future, the larger the chance is. Secondly, uh, it's really hard to know what is going to improve the well-being of people in the future. Um, but you know, those are caveats which affect what we ought to do, but they certainly don't negate the argument that uh, Tyler Cowen and, and others have put forward. There's uh, a great book by uh, somebody in the effective altruism movement called Toby Ord called The Precipice, which came out quite recently, which is about the risk of wiping out, you know, of us wiping ourselves out, or of some catastrophe wiping us out. And uh, he also makes the argument about the importance of the long-term future and why we should be putting more resources into uh, ensuring that we don't become extinct. So I accept that. Um, Tyler's uh, emphasis on GDP, I'm more inclined to question. Um, I don't think it is really a good indication of human well-being. There's, uh, it depends a little bit on how you measure well-being, what questions you ask people. Uh, and on some indications, you do get the richest countries with the highest well-being. Um, but on other questions that you ask that relate more to people's mood and how much they're enjoying themselves at randomly selected moments of the day, it doesn't seem to correlate that much. So that's a factor. And then another factor is um, you obviously have to consider the environmental impact of increasing GDP, um, and particularly in the world today, uh, ways of increasing GDP, you know, here I am in Australia, a big coal exporter. Uh, we can increase our GDP by exporting more coal, but that's in turn going to have, uh, you know, well, we just had the worst bushfire season ever last January. So, you know, th that's clearly climate related and we're going to inflict bad things on ourselves. And of course, even worse things on, other parts of the planet that are less able to cope with uh, environmental climate catastrophes. So I think there's a, a, a lot more to be taken into account than simply increasing GDP. But uh, in terms of the general principle about looking at the long-term future uh, as far as we can, yes, I, I fully agree that that's important. Of course, we can't be well, sure that people in the future aren't assholes undeserving of our generosity, but... Uh... You know, no, we can't be sure, but um, uh, I'm concerned about people living better lives and some of them will be ourselves and some of them will be great people. And I think we have to just, you know, lump it if we benefit some, some people that we don't think deserve to be, to have good lives at all. Um, that's, that's not something that we can do anything about really. Let, let's wind up with a few uh, qu quick takes. Um, so um, where does lying step into all this? Let's say a, a wife has cheated on her husband and he, <laughs> and he asks her to tell the truth and she knows that she tells the truth, it's going to cause tremendous harm to her children and, and you know, just, just way more harm to be done than, than good by telling the truth. 
um, does she have an obligation to lie or is she supposed to tell the truth? I don't think there's, uh, there's an absolute rule to tell the truth. I do think it depends on, on the circumstances. And I think we can all think of circumstances where uh, it's, better, it's better to lie. Uh, you know, I guess the most obvious one was when during the, the, the Holocaust, when the Gestapo come to your door and say, uh, are there any Jews in the house? Obviously, if you're hiding Jews in your basement, uh, the right thing to do is to lie. Um, and, you know, the circumstances you described are somewhat less at stake, but there's still a lot at stake. So maybe it's right to lie in those circumstances, too. I, I may call on you for a letter, uh, some sort of letter of, uh, <laughs> future, if you don't mind. Um, uh, you've said that incest is okay or not okay. These are some of the things I have to admit. I took these from a review in the Times, but they're, they're, they're really interesting to me. Incest is okay. So I'm using this example from uh, the psychologist Jonathan Haidt about uh, adult sibling incest, all right? So we're talking about adults. They're fully informed and consenting. They know what they're doing. Um, they decide that it might be fun to have sex. Um, I don't, you know, and, and they use contraception to make sure they're not going to have a child who might have a higher risk of abnormalities. Uh, you know, there's a kind of instinctive yuck reaction we have to that, but it's pretty hard to say why there's anything wrong with that. I don't think so. What about, no, I, you I agree. You know, I try to bring it up at Thanksgiving, but my family's like. <laughs> you talk a lot about on this show about judging people by the by the times that they live in, and so of course that comes up with the founding fathers and oh, whether, good one, Dan. Good whether one. or not, uh, you know, we we slave owning, uh, we consider it horrifying, but in those days it was it was more normal. Do you think that in the future, is there anything you can think of that people in the future will look at us and say, my God, what horrible people. I can't believe they thought that was okay. And in 100 years, 200 years, it will be taken for granted that it's not okay. And they take down Natterman's statue, by the way. That's how it ends. Well, the, my, my answer to that is, is yes, it's absolutely clear. I think that people will look back on the way we have put literally billions of animals every year through factory farming, you know, through horrible kinds of confinement, treating them just as, as things, uh, you know, doing everything as cheaply as we can, uh, irrespective of the suffering it causes to animals, just in order to eat their flesh when we don't need to eat their flesh. It's not necessary for our good health or nutrition. It's not environmentally desirable either. Um, I think we will broaden the circle so that we understand that we do have ethical obligations in the way we treat non-human animals, sentient beings, and, and people will look back on that as we might look back on slavery or the games at the Roman Colosseum. Does that apply to one of Coleman's favorite examples to uh, choosing to buy a cell phone that, that to our best of our knowledge has the fewest uh, slave-like uh, laborers constructing it? Uh, it's a little more remote, I guess, that people have to try and get all this information. But sure, there. if you have a choice in cell phones and you you know one of them is labeled slaves were used to make this cell phone and the other isn't, then it's obviously completely wrong to buy the one. Chinese manufactured know. versus a Korean one. Go ahead. Go ahead. to animals. Uh, uh, call, call call what, about, uh, what about immigration? Do you think people will look back hundreds of years from now and say, how could you have possibly let so few people come into your country? Well, I, I hope that uh, in hundreds of years we will have a borderless world and, and they will be astonished at what we're doing. But I'm not sure about that because it, that would require us to get this sort of xenophobia out of human nature, you know, this idea that we are not comfortable with people who are different from us. Um, and uh, if they still have that, then they won't feel that. Uh, but maybe we will have developed and uh, got more 
used to living in very diverse communities and we will uh, look at that and say, yes, you know, having borders is part of the same thing as to leaving people in other countries to, to, to starve. Well, one that's more from Dan and I got one more if anybody else going. One more from whoever. I just was with animals. Uh, are there any animals you think it's okay to eat or should we just err on the side of caution and assume all animals are sentient beings worthy of not killing? Well, you know, oysters, for example, I don't think are sentient beings. Uh, so if you're partial to oysters or mussels or clams or scallops, those sorts of creatures, I think when we look at their nervous system, they're probably not capable of feeling pain. So yeah, go ahead. Oh, lobster. Chuck down your oysters. Uh, my, my, does anybody has a final question before me? Because my question is very lighthearted. So uh, anybody have something serious? After this one, you're not going to be able to go back to death. So uh, anybody else want to talk? Lighten us up. I think it's good. This is my question. What was 11-year-old Peter Singer like? Were you, were you like, what were you like as a child? Were you walking around weighing deep questions among your friends? Did, did you always have this aspect to your thought process? Well, it was fascinating to me. Like, where, where did this... No, I really attribute it to, to getting into philosophy, actually. No, and I wasn't reading any philosophy when I was 11 years old. I think my first... I, I read Bertrand Russell's History of Western Philosophy when I was about 14, um, and that interested me in it, but it took a lot longer before I started really thinking about ethics and thinking that I should be living in the, some way that was according with, with my thinking on those questions. I mean, do you want to I was just a pretty yourself? normal 11-year-old kid. You want to pinch yourself when you hear yourself described as the, you know, the most important philosopher on, on planet Earth? I mean, how, that's, that's a very uh, heady thing to deal with. No, yeah, it is. It is. But, but to, to me, you know, yes, I, I, maybe I pinch myself, but I also think, gee, that's, that's a pity that there aren't more influential philosophers <laughs> around because I'm not all that influential. So, you know, I, I want to increase the influence of philosophy so that there can be hundreds of philosophers who have more influence than no, I do. No, how do you feel when you're told that you own the number one comedy club in the world? Yeah, that's such a minor thing. I, I feel lucky. Um, I'll tell you this. I, I, I want to say, I want to make this observation, and I, and I really mean this from the bottom of my heart. I, I am always amazed that the, 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 the truly most impressive people come across so humble. And, and uh, like I would never in a million years feel like I was talking to, to someone who is who you are. And I've had so many conversations with so far lesser people who talk down to you and, you know, are arrogant and, and look for the excuse to put you in your place and whatever it is. So, I mean, I just doubly admire that with, with, all, the, with, with all that you've accomplished, that you can be so patient and, and, and speak to us. The Australian. This is regular people. You know, I, I really admire that. never so, met an honestly. arrogant Australian. Well, maybe James Smith a little bit arrogant. But I don't want to keep him. Um, you know, when you were reading Peter Singer's books, did you, re did you hear the Australian accent? Because when I was reading what little I've read, it was an American guy. <laughs> well, I, I always knew that he was Australian, so <laughs> may maybe it was there somewhere. But you really did, um, I don't know, I really think that like you changed the course of, I don't know, of my life, but of the way that I really saw the world. And um, I like to think that a lot of the more ethical decisions I've made, I've always had you um, in the back of my head. So thank you really for taking the time. By the way, Peter, Perry Ells also has some books. I don't know if you've read uh, The Only Bush <laughs> I my own, but it is available. I, I don't know if you ever get, I don't know if you ever get to America, but um, if you do, we'd love to have you 
come and join us in the in the restaurant above the comedy cell. John Height lives uh, about two blocks down the street, and he comes in. And Tyler Cowen comes in from time to time, and and Coleman comes in. And I I know if you ever came in, um, they would all flock. Well, I would be you. I would be going back to America in the fall because I teach every fall at Princeton. But this year we're teaching remotely now, um, so I won't be. So, but you know, hopefully this thing will be over, and I will be back there again. Uh, that would be. Uh, let me just add, you know, since you talked about Australian accents, uh, if your readers want to hear more of me reading that the book, The Life You Can Save, you can go online to thelifeyoucansave.org, and you can download an audio copy of the book, ah. in which uh, I read one chapter. And a lot of celebrities like uh, Kristen Bell and uh, Paul Simon, um, Stephen Fry, a lot of people, we have a lot of different accents. So we have American <laughs> accents. We have uh, Stephen Fry's beautiful uh, BBC English accent. We have uh, Shabana Azmi, an Indian uh, actress. Uh, they all donated their time because they support the cause of uh, saving lives and helping people in low-income countries. Nice. So if your listeners can go there and download it absolutely free. And where can they follow you on Twitter as well? Is that right? Yeah, I'm Peter Singer um, uh, on Twitter. You can find me there. Um, and uh, I have a Facebook page as well. You know a guy named Jonathan Barron, by the way, at UPenn? I had him. Does that ring? Yeah. I had yeah, him. I know him, and he, he he's a great journal editor now, and I've just actually, with some other people, we've published uh, in his paper, in the journal he edits called uh, Judgment and Decision-Making, um, about sort of related to what we're talking about, about making rational appeals to people to do good as compared to emotional appeals. He was one of, he, I got an A from him. I didn't get that many. <laughs> and when I went to well, law, I'm sure it was well-deserved. When I, when I went to law school, I called him up for a recommendation and he said, there's too many lawyers out there. So he indeed is an <laughs> I cheated a lot in school, but it's because I wanted to spend time, uh, you know, in helping people. So, <laughs> all right, sir. Uh, I guess that's it. It's, we're at an hour and, and you've been very generous with your time and we really want to thank you so much. And I, and I really do indeed hope we will get to meet you face to face. I'm going to go out and let me say that Peter enjoyed his time with us. Did you enjoy it? I've enjoyed my time. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, oh, it's been good fun. He's not a yeah. person of great effusiveness, but I can tell that he. <laughs> right. Uh, that's it. Yeah. Good night, everybody. Okay. Good night, oh, everybody. Good night. Bye. Comedy seller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell them. Podcast at Comedy Seller. Uh, comedy Seller. Podcast at Comedy Seller.com for questions, comments, suggestions. And uh, I guess that's it. And Coleman, do you have anything you'd like to plug? Follow me at ColdXMan on Twitter. Look at my columns at, at uh, the Manhattan Institute at City Journal. Thank okay. you all so much. See you next time. Bye. Bye.